so much. Okay, I'll go do this one. All right. Hey, sorry about that. That was uh, smooth. Hey, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm a lead pastor here at Midtown Church. So glad that you're joining us this morning. We're uh, continuing a series that we are about uh, a little bit more than halfway through that we're calling The Big Picture. And I hope that uh, if you've been here for this, you've been enjoying it, finding it helpful. We're uh, trying to do something a little bit tricky, uh, especially on days like today, where we're, we're trying to cover all, all of the Bible in 12 weeks and really trying to flesh out the whole story of God's Word. And the reason we're doing this is because we believe, and the Bible's clear, God speaks to us through this, that the Bible is the way that we can know who God is and what He's done. That this is His clear revelation to us. And what we recognize as a church is that we have many people here on a Sunday morning who, who don't you know, you don't know exactly what you believe. You, 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 you might not say that you're a Christian or you've put your faith in Christ yet, but you're, you're here exploring. We also have many people in our church that are young in your faith. You come to Christ uh, and put your faith in Christ over the last year or so, and, and this is kind of still new to you. And then we have many people in our church who, who've grown up in church but still have lack what uh, a real understanding of God's Word. Perhaps you've never even read through the whole Bible before, and you, you're not real sure how it all fits together. Well, this series is meant to help us understand the full story of the Bible, a story that you can sum up with a statement that it's a story about his glory, story about God's glory. And, and I'm hopefully you're enjoying it and getting a lot out of it. Now today, the reason that the series can be a little tricky is because on days like today, where we're, I'm going to try to cover 17 books of the Bible in the next 30 minutes, and I'm going to fail. But uh, you just give me some grace, but that, like, it's, kind of, uh, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. But what we, let me catch you up where we've been so far. So up to this point, we've covered the first 17 books of the Bible, which you can, if you notice in the Old Testament, the way that that's laid out for you is basically those are called the, the, the historical books. They follow kind of the narrative through the Old Testament, really highlighted with back in Genesis 12, where you see uh, God come to the, uh, a guy named Abraham. And he makes a promise, a covenant with Abraham that says, yeah, God says, I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation come from you. And you're going, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. And I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to make you like, I'm going to be your God. And the rest of the Bible, in a sense, is the unfolding of God's faithfulness to that promise. And so you see in the 17 first books of the Old Testament, the story of how God is faithful to that, that a great nation comes from Abraham, the nation of Israel, and God does give them a land and the promised land, and God is their God, and he gives them his law, and they're to be a light to all the other nations that all the other nations would know what God is like through that they get to see how God interacts with the nation of Israel. But the problem is, is that even though God is faithful to his promise, the nation of Israel was very unfaithful to their God, and that they do not follow their God. And this is really highlighted when the nation of Israel rejects God as their king and says, we want to be like the other nations around us. We want to have kings for ourselves. So God gives them kings. So he gives them Saul, who doesn't walk with God. He gives them David, who does walk with God. And then Solomon, who is a mixed bag, who eventually... Uh, 
introduces, reintroduces uh, idol worship in the nation of Israel that leads to a divided kingdom here. The divide, and this is important for where we're going to go today. So just a brief, brief refresher here. The divided kingdom is, remember, the nation of Israel was made up of 12, tri- uh, 12 tribes, 12 tribes of, of, of Jacob. And so you got the 12 tribes. Well, the, when idol worship is reintroduced, the 12 tribes... The makeup Israel split into two different nations. The, the northern kingdom is known of, as Israel still. They retain that name, and it's made up of 10 tribes. The 10 tribes of the northern kingdom have 20 kings. None of them walk with God. They last right about 200 years, and then uh, God judges them through the a nation of Assyria, and they're brought into captivity, and were ne- really never heard from again. The southern kingdom, made up of two tribes, is named, uh, is called uh, the, uh, Judah. And in Judah, they have 20 kings as well. Eight of them walk faithfully with God. Twelve of them don't. And during that time, they last for about 400 years. After 400 years, they too are judged by God and, and raided by Babylon and brought into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then God in his grace frees them, brings them back into Jerusalem, back to the promised land where they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And then the, the, the story ends <laughs> kind of abruptly. And you get silence for 400 years until the birth of Christ. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about that period of silence. It's going to be really fascinating. Give you, if you ever wondered, like, what, what, was, the, what was it like? What, what was the climate like before Christ arrived that, that caused him to get the reaction that he got when, he, when, he, when, when Jesus was born? We're going to look at that next week. So come back for that next week. We'll have a lot of fun. But that wraps up the, the first 17 books of the Old Testament right? The, the historical books. We also, two weeks ago, uh, Jamie taught through the, the poetical books, which is the next section of the Old Testament. You have five books that are the poetical books. The poetical books really give you a picture into the, the heart and the relationship of Israel as they wrestled with their relationship with God. So that was the poetical books. Today, we're going to tackle the prophetical books, and there are 17 of them, and that's, how the, that's the last section of the Old Testament. So 17 pr- prophets or prophetical books, uh, 16 authors. Uh, Jeremiah is believed to have written the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. So that's 16 authors, 17 books. So we'll have a little fun with that today. I, I've got a little tension with me because like whenever I'm teaching through a passage of the scripture that's like a small excerpt, I always feel like, man, we're missing the big picture when we're just looking at a few verses. When we're looking at 17 books of the Bible, I feel another tension, which is, hey, we're getting to see the big picture, but man, we're skimming over so much good stuff. But you're just going to have to deal with that, and I am as well. So uh, we're going to, here's where we're going. We're going to talk about and answer the question, hey, what is a prophet? Because a pro- prophets wrote the prophetical books. So it's helpful for us to know, okay, what is a prophet? And then we're going to look at, I'm going to try to give you three keys to help you understand the prophetical books so that you can read them on your own. And then... The, uh, third, the third thing we're going to spend some time on is just going to do a real quick overview of these books, and then we're going to zero in, uh, narrow in on two major themes that will show up again and again in these books and that are still highly relevant to us today. So that's where we're going. Let me pray, and let's dive in. Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we do ask you to teach us this morning and to show us, Lord, the beauty of your word and Lord, even more importantly, how the, the, the word shows us your beauty. 
Lord, just how incredible you are. Give us more of a hunger to know you. Lord, drive us to spend time in your word and speak to us today for your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray. All right, so let's begin with the question, what is a prophet? And just a simple definition for you here, a, a prophet is someone who proclaims the word of God both for the future and the present. Someone who proclaims the word of God both for the future and the present. So a prophet isn't someone who only speaks about what's coming, but nor is a person who only speaks about what is, but someone who usually does both. Both claims the word of God for the future and the present. So to prophesy is to speak the word of God both for the future and the present, all right? Now, the question that might come to your mind on that is, well, then how do you know if someone's a prophet, right? I mean, can anyone just claim like, hey, I, I'm a prophet. I got a, I got a word of God, and here's what you need to do. And if you don't do it, then this is what's going to happen. I mean, that would that'd be a nice card to be able to play. Like, I, guys, I'm a prophet, and God told me you're supposed to buy my lunch today. And if you don't, he will smite you. Smite's a good prophet word, I think. So you just throw that in there. People might think, but how do you know? How do you know if someone's an actual prophet, if they're really speaking the word of God? Well, Deuteronomy 18 Verses 25 through uh, 30, or sorry, 15 through 22 is a great reference. You might want to write that down, go back and look at it later this week. But in that passage, we find the Old Testament test how to determine if someone's a prophet or not. And it's a high standard. In that passage, you learn that to be a prophet, you have to be 100% accurate. That's the test of, of whether you're a prophet or not. If you say that God says something, and that if you don't do it, then this will happen. Or if you're predicting, like, this is what I'm, God's told me is going to happen in the future. If it doesn't come about, then you're not a prophet and you're to be punished. And that passage tells you what the punishment is. And it's uh, not a little thing. It's death. All right? So it's not real advantageous of you. It's not a great way to make a living or even to live to be a false prophet and to be regularly declaring, like, here's what God says and here's what's going to happen if it doesn't actually happen. So that's the big test in Deuteronomy 18. There's another reason why most people wouldn't want to claim that they're a prophet, and we'll see it later on this morning, but that you'll see that the primary like, message that prophets are communicating is a message that the people don't want to hear. So if you're, if you're wanting to get on people's like, good side, you don't come to them as a prophet. Because prophets are bringing usually a message of repentance and calling people to change their ways. And you don't win a lot of friends that way. So, but anyways, a prophet is someone who speaks the very word of God, both for the future and for the present. Now, once you start reading the prophets, you might run into something that we normally run, that pretty much everyone runs into, and that's the fact that uh, they're hard to understand. You say, I don't know if you spent some time reading through the prophets, but you bump up in some stuff, and it's like, man, I don't, I don't know really what's going on. So let me give you three keys to helping you understand the prophets so that you can read them on yourself. Because, because when you're trying to preach 17 books of the Bible in one day, you can't. And so you really, I'm going to give you all some tips so that you can go actually read those on your own, which you're going to get a lot more out of it that way than if you were just listening to me anyway. So here's, some, here's three, key, three key tips. Before I give them to you, let me make a little commercial break. And that is, if you don't own or use a study Bible, I'd really encourage you to pick one up. 
All right? I think that it's awesome when you have your Bible on your phone and you can just have it with you wherever you go and all that stuff. I'm all for that. But don't let the ease of that keep you from being a real student of God's Word. And a study Bible is a very helpful resource, namely because what you have in a study Bible is at the beginning of each book in the Bible, you'll get a lot of key information that includes, like, who wrote this book, who the original audience was, what the major themes are in the book. It's going to really, really help you understand that stuff. And that will especially help you when you're reading the prophets. And so guys, I want to encourage you, get a study Bible. The ESV study Bible is a great uh, resource for you to pick up. All right. Now, commercial over. I'm not getting paid by them to say that, but okay. Three key tips to help you understand prophetical books. The first is very simple. It's understanding the distinction between the major prophets and the minor prophets. And you may be familiar with this, that the prophets are divided into those two categories, either major prophet, minor prophet. It's helpful to understand that that's not the same distinction that you find in baseball. All right, it's not like the major leagues and the minor leagues and the minor prophets are those that really tried hard but just couldn't quite cut it. And the major leagues are like the ones who really heard from God. That's not the distinction in the prophets. So the, the major prophets, the only thing that distinguishes them from the minor prophets is the size of their books. So Isaiah, 66 chapters, Joel, five chapters. Joel, minor prophet, Isaiah, major prophet. Okay, all equally inspired so that's helpful for you to understand. The second thing is uh, pay attention, guys, to uh, just key literary advice here. Pay attention to who the original audience was, namely when they lived and where they lived. This will really greatly help you understand the prophetical books. If you keep in mind that, one, the prophetical books stretch the time of the kings— all the way into the time of the exile for Judah, and then post-exile when, when they returned back to the land. So when, if you would just pay attention to when it was written, namely, is it a post-exile, I mean a pre-exile audience, or an exile audience, or a post-exile audience, that will help you make a lot more sense of the prophetical books, all right? So uh, for 12 of the books were written pre-exile, Two of them during the exile, namely Ezekiel and Daniel, and then three post-exile. And you'll see up there, that's Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and Malachi. So um, that's, that's going to be helpful stuff for you to pay attention to in addition to who they're writing to, like where those people lived. Namely, um, it, you know, it's helpful to know that the prophets aren't all written to the same audience. Some are written to the, to the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel, some are written to the southern kingdom, uh, Judah. Some are written to the exiles in Babylon. And then others are written to uh, Gentile nations or cities, so Edom or Nineveh. And like the, the audience is going to really help you. Knowing that, it's going to really help you under, make sense of the book, okay? So those are just helpful tips. Pay attention to that as you're reading it. The final tip is this. It's something that is referred to as the, the mountain peak perspective. The mountain peak perspective. And this deals with understanding the prophecy found in the prophetic books. And I don't know about where all y'all stand, but for some, the prophecy stuff, it's like, man, you can't get enough of that. For others, you're like highly skeptical about that. And I get those two reactions, but it's helpful to know wherever you land on that, that in the, uh, in the prophetical books, there's this perspective phenomenon that you have to keep in account to help you understand and interpret 
the prophetic passages. And it's called the Mountain Peak Perspective because it's like this. I don't know how many of y'all have gone like hiking in Colorado or somewhere where there's mountains and you're like, you decide one day like you're going to be awesome and you're going to you know, take a trek up a mountain. So you start off and you're going to you know, ascend this mountain and about two hours into the, into the hike, you begin to get a different perspective. And along the hike, you realize that the mountain peak that you thought you were climbing actually isn't the mountain that you're on. It's actually another mountain that's on the other side of it. And in between the mountain you're on and that mountain, there's like a valley and hills. Like, I mean, your, your perspective was way off. Does that, does that happen to some of y'all? See some of you nodding your head? Yeah, you guys are in better shape than I am. But uh, so you go, that's a mountain peak perspective. Your perspective changes because when you're far away, what looks to be one thing turns out to be two different things. Well, that happens in the prophecy, in the prophetical books. And it's helpful to keep that in mind. Where you see oftentimes the uh, prophets will be talking about an event that's going to take place in the future. And it seems like the way they're talking about it, that it's going to all happen at the same time. But what really has happened is that they're seeing from this perspective far off that part of it is going to happen. And then after a lot of time will pass and then more of it will happen. So you have this partial fulfillment that then leads to a full fulfillment later on. So I'm sure that that's uh, as clear as mud for you. So let me, let me give you a specific illustration of this, see how this plays out. And I'll use a uh, popular passage, one that many of you I'm sure are familiar with that gets looked at every Christmas time, found in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So in Isaiah 9, you have this prophecy about the coming Messiah. And in verse 6, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now again, that's quoted in the New Testament in reference to the birth of Jesus. And saying like this, this prophecy given by Isaiah 600 years before the birth of Christ, that's been fulfilled. That a son has been given, a child has been born. He is God himself, the Messiah. Answered prophecy. But if you keep reading, the very next verse, what you read is this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, you read that part, very next verse, and you're saying, like, well, wait a second. Like, I, don't, I don't remember that part. Like, didn't Jesus, he was born, he, he, he lived, and then he died on the cross, and he rose again, and then he ascended to heaven. Like, where is it like he's sitting on an earthly throne, reigning from where there's a peace that knows no end? Like, I look around this world right now, and I don't see a peace that knows no end. Like, what is this about? And you're confused. Well, guys, this is, a, this is an example of that mountain peak perspective, where Isaiah, 600 years in the future of Christ's Christ's birth, sees that coming, but doesn't realize that in all that he sees is coming is not all going to happen in one event. It's not the same thing he's looking at. He's looking at one part of it, and then there's going to be this gap of time, and then the second part is going to be fulfilled. Namely, you've got the first coming of Christ, and then you've got a gap, which is the church age, and then the second coming of Christ. And you see this throughout the prophets. And it's just helpful to keep that 
in perspective. Uh, Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians how there was this mystery that was revealed that the prophets didn't even know was happening. That was that after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that God would do a new work where he would open up the kingdom to the Gentiles, to most of us or Gentiles, to where we as a part of his church could also be included in the kingdom of God. And that after this period of time, Christ would return in the second coming and the rest of these prophecies would be fulfilled in the Old Testament. It's worth noting that in the, uh, in the pro- prophets, you have like 700 different prophecies about what the Messiah, about what Jesus will do. 300 of them have already been fulfilled in Christ's first coming. We'll look at some of them next week in next week's message. And it's, it's just absolutely amazing. But 400 of them have yet to be fulfilled. Most of them having to do with his, his kingdom and his reign and what he will do when he sets up his kingdom here on earth. And so that's just helpful stuff to keep in mind. If you're trying to understand the prophecies and the prophetical books, keep the Mount Peak perspective in mind. All right. Hopefully that's somewhat helpful for you. Okay. Now, now to do that, prepared to go read all of these books by yourself this week, and I would still highly encourage you to do that. Let me give you a really high, or let me just actually point to you a resource of a really, uh, a really high-level overview of these 17 books. I'm not going to read all this, but uh, you can, David, you can just go to this chart. Um, I'm not going to read everything I have on here. I want you to see that I have this and that if you want it, I'll email it to you. So email me and I'll send it your way. You'll get more out of it if you're reading it on yourself than you are hearing me talk through it this morning. Or you can take a picture of it while it's up there, whatever you want to do. So, uh, but a couple of things I want to highlight for you. Uh, What you find in the prophetical books is a two major themes that get repeated again and again and again. So in this summary, like you'll see in the book of Joel, uh, who's writing to pre-exilic Judah, he writes that the day of the Lord, which is a biblical term for the day of judgment, is coming for Judah. So his message to them is repent. Or Amos, who writes to pre-exilic Israel, the northern kingdom, and his message is judgment is coming for Israel. So repent and turn back to God. Or Isaiah, one of the major prophets, writes pre-exilic Judah and his message, though very hard to sum up 66 chapters in one sentence. Here's my stab at it. God is holy and judgment is coming, but so is the Savior and future restoration. Or Zephaniah writes, the day of the Lord, judgment is coming for Judah, so seek him now. Or Jeremiah, judgment is upon you, Judah, but God will bring future restoration. Or Ezekiel, who writes, judgment follows sin, but restoration will follow judgment. And what you, what you see in these 17 books is these two major things show up again and again and again. The first one is this. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. So repent before judgment comes. The second major theme is this. Though sin has consequences, God has a plan. God has a plan. He has a plan to bring salvation and to fulfill his ultimate promise to Abraham that there will be one from the line of Abraham that will bless all the families of the earth and that there will be a kingdom set up forever. God has a plan to bring that about. So major thing, 
Sin has consequences, the second major theme. God has a plan. Now, this is highly relevant to us today. So I want to use the rest of my time uh, just to zero in on this a little bit more, all right? So first, let's just talk about this deal. The God, the, the, the first one, that uh, sin has consequences. Like this message, again, 12 of the prophetical books, 12 out of 17, were written before judgment, before the exile. And then all of these messages are like, there's going to be consequence. Repent, 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 God. There's consequence for your sin. Judgment is coming. Repent, repent, repent. Twelve times God sends 12 different prophets with that message. Wake up. Sin has consequences. Turn, repent. And unfortunately, they don't. And the judgment comes. And primarily it comes in the form of, of, of being conquered by you know, Assyria or, or conquered by Babylon and there's death and there's, you know, exile and all, all of that stuff. Now, for us, we don't often fear being conquered by other nations and being exiled. But, guys, the message is still true. Sin has consequences. And in the prophets, the, the consequences that God points to for sin isn't just exile, isn't just captivity. Like I think about in Jeremiah chapter 2. I'll read this for us. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, it says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and they became worthless themselves. Or as the New American Standard Translation puts it, that they, uh, they walked after emptiness and they became empty. Because that's one of the promises of Scripture and the consequences of sin. God says, if you reject me, then what you will find is that you will get what you asked for. You don't want me, I won't make you have me. And you'll find that you're empty. You're going to chase after emptiness, you're going to become empty. The passage comes on, uh, continues on in verse 11. It says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can, not, that can hold no water. Again, God is saying, like, like there's consequences for sin. And you're going to reject me, and you're going to turn from me, meet the the source, the fountain of living water. What you're going to find is that you're turning something else to satisfy you, to bring you joy, to answer the deep longings of your heart, the deep questions of your heart, and you're turning to something that can never do, or, you know, sex, or, uh, you know, attention, or whatever. You're going to find eventually that you've gone to a broken cistern that holds no water, and you will be unsatisfied, and you're going to be let down. You're going to be joyless. Guys, sin has consequences. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. That the, the due penalty, the due payment 
for our sin is death. And that may be death of your character or death of a relationship or death of a dream or physical death. But the wages of sin is death. Sin has consequences. And for those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, forgiveness of your sins, that you're a Christian, you see that Jesus is your only hope, he's your savior, then you might think to yourself, well, Romans 8, Romans 8 tells me that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And man, I love that verse, one of the best verses in all of scripture. And hallelujah, that is so true. But it is worth noting, friends, that when Paul writes those words, he does not say that there is therefore now no consequence for sin if you're in Christ Jesus. Yes, we do not have to fear being condemned by God if we sin because our salvation is not based on what we do for God, but what he has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, that's awesome. However, that does not mean that there is no consequence. If you look at pornography, there's consequences. What it does to you, to relationships, to future relationships, there's consequences. You have an affair it can ruin your marriage. There's consequences. as there's consequence for sin. So let us repent. And to repent doesn't just mean let's change our behavior. To repent really means to change your mind. For you to see the thing that I'm looking to and I'm chasing after is a broken cistern. There's no water here. There's nothing here that can satisfy. Let me turn to the fountain of living water. Let me believe him. He's trustworthy. He's right. Let me live according to what he says. May we repent for sin has consequences. That's the hard message of the prophets. That's why no one liked the prophets because they were coming with that message. But man, it's a message we still need to hear today. The other major theme is much more a lot easier to hear. It's, it's good news. And that is that God has a plan. God has a plan to save man's plan. It's a plan to bring about his kingdom. And it's an incredible plan. It's, it's really a threefold plan, if you will. Or there's three aspects to this promise that we see in the prophets. The first is that the prophets point again and again and again to a coming Messiah. The one who will uh, uh, deal with our sin to make it possible for us to enter into a relationship once again with our God. I think the, you know, the, the most famous uh, of those prophecies is found in, in Isaiah chapter 53, where uh, it's where the prophet, again, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, speaks of the one who will come and die and suffer, and he tells us why he will suffer. Let me just read for this, read you this. Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will, uh, uh, sorry, prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, which just says he's going to suffer, and then he'll die, and then he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. Like he's going to die, he's going to come back to life, and he's going to be satisfied. Like the payment is going to be final 
goes on and says, And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities, which is the Old Testament word for sin. He will bear their sins. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Because this is amazing. And again and again, the prophets point to the coming Messiah. They say, this is God's plan. See, Israel, we can never get it right. We, God has been nothing but faithful to us. We have been nothing but unfaithful to him. But he's not going to abandon us. He's going to come for us. And there will be a, a, a child born to us who will be God himself, who will suffer and die and bear the transgressions, bear the iniquities, bear the sin of many. And then he will see the light of life. He will come back to life and he'll be satisfied because his payment will be in full. So God has a plan. He's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a Savior. Then the prophets also point to us what will happen as a result of what Jesus does, what the Messiah would do. And that is that he will usher in a new covenant, a new covenant between God and his people. Think about in Jeremiah chapter uh, 31, it says this. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. God uh, says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In other, in, in other words, God's saying, like, I'm going to make this new covenant. It's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant. It's not going to be like the covenant that I made with Moses. When I said, here's the law, here's how to live. And if you live this way, we'll bless you. And if you don't live this way, then you'll, you'll be cursed. And the people said, no, no, we will live that way. We'll follow your law. He says, no, no, no. It's not going to be the kind of covenant I'm about to make. Now, this new covenant, I'm going to do all the work. See, in this new covenant, I'm going to not only give you the law, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to write it on your minds. I'm going to write it on your hearts. See, this new covenant, I'm not going to tell you what to do and expect you to be able to do it because we've seen you can't do it on your own. So in this new covenant, I'm going to not only tell you what to do, but then I'm going to enter into you. I'm going to give you my spirit, and I'm going to give you my power. I'm going to enable you to do what I've called you to do. Look at look what Jeremiah says going on. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And then the prophet Ezekiel, speaking about the new covenant, continues in his book, Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27, says this, I will, and God speaking again, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean 
from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You guys, you hear this? This is part of God's plan. This is the new covenant. God says, hey, no longer am I going to expect that you're going to be able to keep my law. You can't. And so not only am I going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to give you the power to do it. And I'm going to give you, hearts. I'm going to give you a new heart so that you walk according to my ways. I'm going to write it on your minds. I'm going to write it on your hearts. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to make you a new creation. Because this is why it's such a big deal that when Jesus, the night before he's, the night that he's betrayed, the night before he's crucified, He's having a Passover meal with his closest friends. And in that meal, he holds up this cup and he says, hey, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And his followers, they hear that. They think Jeremiah 31. They think Ezekiel 36 is the new covenant. Jesus said, I am initiating a new relationship between me and you, between God and his people, where not only are you going to be told what to do, but you're going to be forgiven for failing to do it. And then you're going to be empowered to do it. I'm going to put my spirit within you. Third the third thing that the prophets point to, part of God's plan, is that they reaffirm again and again that there is a new kingdom coming. That there, God is going to stay faithful to his promise that there will be a kingdom that will bless all the nations. That all the way back to Abraham, he says, it's going to happen. It's going to happen because of the Messiah. It's going to happen through this new covenant. But it's going to happen. Like think about Isaiah chapter 65. And it says this. Verse 17, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. A new kingdom is coming. See, guys, sin has consequences, so repent. God has a plan, and it's a great plan. See, the Messiah is coming, the prophets say, and he's going to initiate a new covenant, and it's going to result in a new kingdom. And they point us to that, and now us on the other side of the cross, look at what they say, and we be, may we be encouraged. Again, for God keeps his promises, and we've seen his plan start to roll out. We've seen the Messiah is coming. We've seen the new covenant initiated. So how do we respond? Well, guys, let us respond in three ways. One, let's realize sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And guys, if there's sin in your life right now, may you call it what it is. Mind, this, not just vow to change your behavior, but change your mind. This thing is not where it brings life. God is the fountain of living waters. Let me trust him. How can I trust him? I can trust him because he sent his son to die for me. If he would do this for me, I can trust that he is trustworthy. <laughs> Let me go to him, the fountain of living waters. As if 
two helpful tips to help you like, see, respond to the truth that sin has consequences. One is this. Is read, your, read your Bible. <laughs> James tells us the Bible is like a mirror. It helps us see ourselves. It helps us see the sin. And one of the most difficult things about sin, guys, is that sin has a blinding effect. The more you sin, the less likely you're to see that sin for what it is. But if you open up the Word, the Word will help you see. Read, your, read the Bible. Second thing is, make it a habit, even daily, for you to review your day and see where you've sinned and to confess that to God, to repent. The other thing that we do with this is to believe to believe that God does have a plan and to believe that his plan is good. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never, like if you're here today and you're exploring and you're like, I don't know if this is like how to have a relation with God, but you hear about how sin has consequences and you've seen that play out in your life, what I would say to you is, as there's good news, that God and his great love for you sent his son to die for you. And Jesus died on the cross. He rose again from the grave. And he's made a way for you through his death and resurrection to be forgiven for your sins. And you can enter into a relation with God through faith even right now. Simply believe that Jesus died for you. Admit that you're a sinner and choose to make him your savior. And those for, you, for those of you who have already done that, you're already a Christian. I would call you also to believe in God's plan. And one aspect of that is to believe this, that he's initiated a new covenant. And what that means for you is that you actually have the power, his power, to live according to his way. And if you find yourself thinking, man, I, I, yeah, I see that I'm a sinner, but I can't break this pattern of sin. I see that I'm a sinner, and I know there's consequences, but I try to break it, and I just can't, and I try, and I just can't. And so here, believe God has actually given you his spirit, his power to obey in that. But you do. He's also given you his people, us. We want to come alongside and help you in that. But you do not lack the power. God has given it to you in Christ. May you believe. And then the third thing that I would want to point out in this message before I wrap up is this. That um, as the prophets were a sign of the very grace of God who had a very hard job to proclaim God's word to people that did not want to hear it. But man, don't we wish that they had listened and responded? And aren't we so glad that God sent them? Well, guys, we are like the prophets. We're not going to proclaim, at least as far as I know, what's going to happen in the future but we have been given God's word. Like God, the Bible is God's word. We do know what God says. And what we've been called to do as his people is to take his message to our world, to our communities, to our offices, to our classmates, to our neighborhoods, and be a sign of God's love to our city that says, sin has consequences. But God has an incredible plan. And he has sent his son 
to die for you. And he rose again and you can come to know him because we have an incredible message that's important for us to share just like it was for the prophets. And yes, people might not want to hear it. And people might ignore you or worse, but as God has sent us, may we go. Ezekiel 18 tells us this. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. He proclaimed that message through a prophet. The people would turn and live. And guys, he's given us the message of the gospel that he wants to proclaim to us. The people would turn and live. May, may we do that. Guys, God sends people because he loves people. He sends us because he loves people. He sends the prophets because he loved Israel. He loved Judah. He loved Nineveh. He loved Edom. And we know for sure that he loves us because he didn't just send the prophets and he doesn't just send us, but he... He sent his son. God so loved the world that he gave or that he sent his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish in life. As we wrap up today, we're going to remember that by taking communion. Jesus' death on our behalf, his body broken and his blood spilled. The new covenant in his blood initiated for us to have a brand new relationship with God. May what God has done and his love so clearly demonstrated in Christ move us. And may it cause us to see that sin has consequences. And Jesus' death. That we would repent. And may we rejoice in his plan. And may we be compelled to proclaim his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Father. May we believe it. May we read it. May we hear from you. Lord God, may we repent from our sin and or may we believe in your plan. And God, may you get all the glory. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. As we remember his death and burial right now, and by taking communion, may we rejoice that you would do this for us. And may you be honored as we sing your praises together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.